This episode is supported by Amethix Technologies, a data analytics company that uses AI and machine learning to create products that transform the way organizations and people use their data. Check them out, amethix.com. It's A-M-E-T-H-I-X.com. This is Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. Here's your host, Francesco Caraletta. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to Data Science at Home podcast, where we talk about technology, machine learning, and algorithms. Today, I'm very excited to talk to Chris Skinner, chair of the European Networking Forum, the Financial Services Club, chair of Nordic Finance Innovation and author of best-selling books, Digital Bank, Value Web, and the latest, Digital Human. Chris Skinner is also known as an independent commentator on the financial markets and fintech through his blog, thefinancer.com. Chris and I recently got in touch at the Banking Scene 2019 fintech conference recently held in Brussels. During that conference, he talked as a, a real troublemaker. That's how he defines himself, saying that, people are not educated with loans, credit, money, and that banks are failing at digital. After I got my hands on Digital Human, I invited Chris to the show in order to ask him a few questions about innovation, regulation, and technology in finance. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Francesco. Nice to be here. Yeah, so I would like to ask, well, to start this this conversation with kind of a personal question for you, um, which is what areas within fintech do you personally find most interesting and why? Well, I'm always passionate about the future and technology. And so you, Isaac Asimov described that um, technology is something that appears to be magic. And that's why we always think it's amazing that and it's interesting when you think about technology because a lot of the technologies that we thought were magic are now pretty dated and we don't think they're special at all. I remember when I first saw a high-definition t- television and I thought it was amazing. Mm. And now it's kind of ultra HD and soon it'll be immersive holodecks. So I'm just passionate about that because I think it's driving the progression of um, human life and that's where my passion lies, the future and technology and how it affects human life. Well, staying a bit in, you know, towards the fintech field, I have the impression as a, a, a technology expert, so to speak, I have the impression that uh, European startups are going to play a, quite a different game with respect to their, let's say, US, Asian competitors. Now, what opportunities do you see for fintech startups in Europe? Well, I often in my presentations talk about um, the difference between Europe, USA and Asia um, in that a lot of what's happening in America is um, described as fintech. But I think fintech in the American implementation is doing what we've always done cheaper, faster and better with technology. Um, so it's not actually reinventing anything in finance. It's taking old banking products and services and making them improved with technology. Mm. Uh, in Europe, I think we are slightly different because of cultural diversity and language and that we have so many different centers with different ideas. Obviously, London is the biggest center. It's getting over a third of all the investment in Europe. Um, but equally, Paris and Berlin have very strong fintech hubs that get about a fifth of European fintech investments. 
and each of those three um, centres are developing um, different specialisations. Um, right now, one of the things I talk about quite a lot is um, fintech for good. And the fact that we have a lot of young people starting fintech companies that are trying to do good for society and good for planet Earth. And so an example is financial wellness for the mentally ill. And a lot of people with mental illnesses end up with addictions to gambling, for for example. Mm. And so banks um, haven't done anything about this, but there's this challenger banks like Monzo and Starling in the UK that now allow people to turn off the ability to use their accounts for anything that relates to gambling websites or gambling companies. Um, But even then, with those slightly diverse, different ideas, uh, I think it gets interesting when we look at Asia, because Asia uh, has started completely afresh, as has Africa and South, South America. And so in my presentations today, I talk about what they're doing is tech fin, because unlike Europe and America, that has a lot of legacy financial infrastructure and financial products and services. If you didn't have that, then you start with the technology first and look at what technology could do to enable finance rather than taking finance and seeing how you can make it better with technology. So it's different in each geography. Um, I'd say that in Europe, uh, we have a lot more fun- fintech for good focus. Um, but in Asia, they have a lot more um, innovation and innovative thinking around finance. Well, there is also the fact that in Europe, I find also a lot more complexity, at least from the perspective of the regulations. Think about GDPR, for example, uh, more you know generically to def- different domains, digital domains in general, and more specifically to banking, the, the most recent one, the PSD2, which is the new payment service directive. And then, of course, there is one other thing I would like to touch on, which is the, you know, the global movement that goes under the name of blockchain. Uh, you know, indeed, there's a global movement. Now, where do you see the average bank, European bank, in such a dynamic context? So can you explain blockchain to me, Francesca? <laughs> So, so, well, blockchain is a... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> having said that, blockchain does combine everything that's complicated about technology with everything that's complicated about money. Um, and you know, it became a very hot topic um, about three years ago. Uh, and the media hyped it to pieces. And you know, Bitcoin price... Uh, rose to $20,000 and then sank to 3000 and now it's around 8000 And the whole thing is um, a bit of a wild west, if I'm honest. Anything to do with ICOs and blockchain is pretty complex and confusing. And um, it doesn't mean that people should avoid it, but I think a lot of people don't understand it, and I think that's the issue. And a lot of banking people don't really understand it. Um, they've assigned people to projects to go and find out what it is and play with it. Uh, and there's been a lot of playing, there's been a lot of prototyping, there's been a lot of um, you know, proof of, co- of concept and proof of uh, idea, but there's been very little pr- um, production. And the reason for that is that the real reason why you would use a blockchain is um, if you want to share a database with people you don't trust on a, a network basis, uh, and there's not many use cases that that's really the point. Uh, so a lot of areas where people tried and played with the concepts was in the wrong areas because they trusted the people or they didn't need to share the database. Um, and where the real win will occur is in 
the incredibly complicated world of the interaction between governments, citizens, consumers, and businesses, and finance. And that's where we're really talking about infrastructural change around digital identity and customer onboarding and cross-border payments and trust between institutions on a regional and national basis. And that's both government and financial institutions. Uh, and as soon as I've said what I've just said, I think you get a feeling that's not really a technology issue that Chris is talking about. That's actually an infrastructural issue around trust between organizations that requires a lot of um, organization of how those institutions work with each other before you implement the technology. And that's the reason why it's kind of gone into a bit of a, a freeze for a while around blockchain because there's a lot of work going on trying to work out how to get this infrastructural agreement in place before the technology is, is applied. So it will come through, um, or I, th I, I believe it will come through in the next decade. It's just taking a long time because it takes a long time to get those agreements. Well, I will keep my secret question about blockchain at the end of this, uh, of this conversation. Uh, let me switch a bit towards the AI and machine learning side of things. So in many domains, it is quite common to see that, you know, this and that operation is performed by smart algorithms. Now, I'm not saying that AI and machine learning have already become a commodity, but we are definitely getting there. Is that the case in finance or in fintech? Um, it's coming along. Um, I mean, artificial intelligence right now is still at a very early level. Um, you may be aware that there's three levels of artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. which is um, artificial intelligence, general artificial intelligence, and super artificial intelligence. And right now we're still at the first level, so there's right. a long way to go. Um, some of the financial institutions are doing some really interesting things. Uh, most of them say, tend to say, oh, we, we have a chatbot. Um, that, to me, is not really artificial intelligence. That's just um, automating a customer interaction right. with very basic intelligence. Um, my favorite example of artificial intelligence comes out of J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, in fact, they've got a couple of areas where they're using AI. Uh, one is to um, deal with their wholesale commercial contracts with their corporate clients which historically had a lot of lawyers checking the words of those contracts, and they've automated that checking of the wording uh, using an AI engine that can do in one second that historically would take 360,000 hours of legal time. So that's 1,500 lawyers sacked right there, which is great news. Um, the other area is using AI for the investment trading room, where you have very complex client requirements um, on orders. So I can send an order to JP Morgan Chase and say, I want this at the cheapest price or the lowest cost of processing or the fastest speed of order execution or the most likely um, order um, settlement, as in actually achieving the trade. Uh, those are four different dimensions of requirement. I can mix those dimensions on one, two, three, or all four levels. And there's no way that a human could ever implement that complexity of instruction. So using an artificial intelligence engine to do that sort of processing gives JP Morgan an edge and equally satisfies client requirements and is a very intelligent use of such technology. Um, but I think where we're going to end up over the next 
five, ten years is we'll see a lot more AI being used in personalizing customer intelligence, servicing and marketing. And I'm seeing this with Unfinancial in China where that they do a lot of um, proximity-based services for their consumers in their Alipay wallets where you get offers that are um, personalized and localized to the agents and the merchants that are near you. And I've said for a long time that proactive, predictive, proximity-based servicing is going to be where the battle of AI will sort out winners and losers. And I believe that's still wholeheartedly. Well, definitely, despite the use cases you, in addition to the use cases that you just mentioned, of course, you know, generally speaking, if there's one place that banks want to see improvement, of course, AI and machine learning in action is definitely in automating repetitive tasks and, and also financial investments, for example, which are historically, you know, the two, you know, uh, places where banks <laughs> go about make, making money, right? Now, for financial investments, the fact that, for example, algorithms act without emotions <laughs> maybe might help. What happens if that type of AI becomes a commodity that is accessible to everyone? Like, as a, I'm, I'm not an expert in economy, of course, but I would imagine a saturated market in which every investment is like a good one. <laughs> kind of a naive question, but maybe you know a better answer for that. Yeah, I mean, there's two or three things that relate to what you just said. So, um, you know, automating mundane tasks is the example I gave of J.P. Morgan with their wordings of contracts and uh, UBS also does some interesting stuff in this area where client instructions for portfolio execution and risk come through on an email, for example, and historically that would average take a wealth manager 45 minutes to um, organize and a machine can do that immediately. Um, so that's good use of automating mundane tasks. Uh, I think what gets interesting is when we start to do more complicated things like um, you know, wealth management advisory services through artificial intelligence um, analytics, it's quite dangerous right now. And the reason why it's dangerous is that um, you know, there's two great examples where AI shows it's only as good as the humans who are um, training the engines. One was where Amazon was using AI for um, hiring people and the machine learned from historical trends that Amazon preferred to hire men rather than women mm. and so automatically threw away any CV applications from female candidates and that was just because it learned from historical ways in which Amazon had worked in the real world and so they had to train the engine that that's not really what they wanted you know they want diversity they want to give equal um, analytics to any application not just throwing away female ones because they're female and another was when um, the Microsoft Twitter service using AI was launched oh, yeah. <laughs> for um, think, thinking about you. And you know, within 24 hours went from being, I love humans to I hate all Jews and to get tr uh, Trump to be the next Hitler. You know, it's like, this is ridiculous. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, and it's just because the machine is learning what humans are telling it. So what we're going to have in the longer term future is um, you know, a lot of jobs for people to train the machines to do the right things and to explain what machines are doing to, pe to other people and to maintain the machines so that when they do start throwing out female CVs that they learn that that's not what's correct yeah well there's bias in everywhere of course when it comes to machine learning and it, it all depends on the training what we call the training data set which is the the data we feed models with and uh, and of course it will uh, decide what the model is going to predict next 
Yeah, and if you imagine that you went live with a wealth management advisory AI service that started telling everyone to invest in cryptocurrencies and the next day the whole thing plummeted and everyone lost their money, who do you think would be to blame? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know, the developer <laughs> or maybe the... The company. The company, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like uh, autonomous vehicles when they crash. Like, who's, who's yeah, holding exactly. that, right? It's the company. Yeah. Or, or the developer or... You may blame the developer, but at the end of the day, a class action lawsuit will be taken against a self-driving vehicle uh, manufacturer or a wealth management company that provided that advice. Well, let's talk about uh, the gap between banks and startups. I think this is something you really like to talk about. At least I enjoyed reading about it in uh, Digital Human, uh, one, uh, your, your latest your latest book, right? Uh, yeah. So, well, I, I read that book in no time, also for the sake of this interview. I I wanted to be prepared. And <laughs> um, now, it, <laughs> talking about this gap that I, you know, I deal with every day, banks, startups, uh, and often it feels neglected. At least that's the situation I found personally in Europe. Now, the problem I see with traditional banks, and of course, this is also what you write about in Digital Human, is that they keep defending kind of an advantageous position by owning users' data and, of course, most of the business cases because they've been operating in the field since centuries, right? Now, how can startups and progressive vendors in fintech overcome such a barrier? Uh, with great difficulty, but some are starting to do that. And I think it's um, really a reflection of generations um i mean there was a headline yesterday in bloomberg that banks have woken up to the threat of fintech challenges and are throwing billions at digitalization um and you know banks are changing and this is something i talk about quite a lot at the moment that some of the big banks are understanding digital transformation and are trying to transform uh, the best and biggest example of that is one I keep coming back to because I'm working with them on my next book, which is about doing digital. And JP Morgan Chase is investing $11 billion a year in digital transformation, of which 30% is going into new innovations. And you imagine that sort of budget. That, that's huge. Um, Santander just announced that they're going to spend $22 billion over the next four years on digital transformation. That's more than the total investment in fintech startups in Europe uh, last year. So you start, start to say, you know, so the banks are taking this seriously. And you know, how is a challenger? Could, could I really try and compete with that? And I think there's two ways you compete with it. One is where I see a lot of um, the tech unicorns coming out of Europe like TransferWise or Revolut or Monzo, mm -hmm. and they begin with a specialization. Um, and so you specialize in doing something brilliantly well. Um, and my favorite fintech unicorn that I talk about a lot is Stripe. And the reason why they're my favorite fintech unicorn is that they've grown a $20 billion business out of seven lines of code. And that those seven lines of code just made it incredibly simple through an API, plug and play, to um, implement merchant checkout online, uh, much simpler than any alternative from any other organization. And so everyone incorporated it. And the beauty of open APIs, PSD2, open banking, the beauty of all that stuff is that if you get your seven lines of code used by a gazillion companies on the internet, then they've done all the work to in integrate your code and you get all the revenues 
um, in terms of the little fees for every time that that code is used by a customer. So it's a great business model. You, know, you get the revenues, they do the work. I love that idea of a business model. And, and that's what I mean by specialization. But the, I mean, the, the other quick aside to that is when we talk about a lot of the challenges um, and the fact that, again, millions of customers, um, and by this I mean the Monzos, the Starlings, um, the Tandems, and the Revoluts and others, uh, to actually get a customer to switch their main bank provider to a new fintech startup is really difficult because of um, the, the, the lack of trust. Right. And that's where um, it's taking a long time. And how that plays out over, over time, I think will be interesting because when you look at all the startups in fin- the fintech community, an awful lot of them are being started by people, people who are very young. And that has an advantage and a disadvantage. The advantage is that, is that they uh, are very driven with a vision and creating something often very new and very cool and therefore very attractive. But the negative is that often they have a naivety because they haven't got the years of understanding of why finance and financial services products work the way they do and are regulated the way they are. And as they understand that, they realize that maybe some of the cool um, aspects that they want to incorporate can't be incorporated because the regulator won't allow it. So it's a trade-off. Well, except these few, um, let's say, exceptions, big banks you mentioned, like JP Morgan Chase, uh, who are investing uh, quite a lot, you know, even billions um, in, in fintech and also to, to in the purpose of digitalization. I must say that many, I mean, all the other, all the other banks, in fact, are following kind of the same trend of the past, which is building everything in-house and, you know, keep controlling every aspect of their business. So, first of all, why is that the case still? And how do you think this can change? I mean, do, are these banks going to disappear or or what's going to happen? Well, I kind of see three types of bank um, in terms of traditional large banks. So, there's a very small number that truly understand what digital transformation means and how fintech is changing the world. And in terms of large banks, um, I can probably count the ones that fall into that category on two hands, um, maybe a couple of toes added. <laughs> the second type of bank is talking a lot about digital, but they don't really understand digital transformation so they've made it projects with um, functions and functional leaders chief digital officers and they're uh, investing similar amounts to the banks that have fully embraced digital transformation but because the leadership hasn't really internalized it and made it something that's changing the organization they've delegated it to someone to actually implement something it's not really going to change the bank, but it's looking like it's doing the right thing for the media and the shareholder and investors because they have to be on board the digital wave. Mm-hmm. And then the third type of bank um, hasn't even really uh, got digital at all. It's um, still trying to work the way it's always worked, using technology to um, do what they've always done faster, cheaper and better. Um, and so they, they may use the buzzwords of blockchain and artificial intelligence, but they're not really doing anything particularly to change the bank. Right. Um, and the problem is that if you're not changing the bank fundamentally, then you're stuck in the industrial era business model of banking, which is distributing paper through localized buildings with humans. 
Um, because you think about how a bank was built, it was all about check processing, cash processing, and passbooks and ledger entries, which we then automated using mainframes and then cemented that mainframe automation in place with layers of new technology called channels. Um, and if you don't break all that apart to deal with the digital distribution of data that has nothing to do with any paper-based ledger entries, it's all to do with being intelligent with data and analyzing data and leveraging data for intelligence about the customer, then there's no way you're going to compete in 10 years from now with the Amazons and the uh, Alibabas of this world. So that's where the issue really lies, that the banks that have truly embraced digital transformation have seen the threat of Amazon and Alibaba and responded by trying to create their organizational structure to be as agile and as data-enabled as they are. And there's a very few banks in that position, very few. So they are doomed to disappear, in fact. <laughs> they're, they're, they're more doomed to be acquired. Right. Um, you know, uh, one of the large banks said about five years ago that in um, the end of the 2020s, they couldn't imagine more than 10 global banks. Um, I kind of don't agree with that view because you know, to go from 30,000 banks today to 10 in 15 years or or in 10 years from now is ridiculous. But I I, I do think we're going to see a lot of banks acquire because they just can't compete with the data-enabled banks. Well, a bit what happened with the the search engines, for example. You know, Google, you know, before Google, in fact, there was a a myriad of other search engines and then there was kind of a a global adjustment in, in in the field of search engines, as well as for Amazon and many other, you know, big organizations in, uh, in, in, uh, in technology today. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I, my personal opinion on this is that as we keep injecting technology in finance, we, they're going to have kind of the same trend. That's my speculation on the. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard this being said for all of my business life, which is quite a long one now, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> But And the reason why we've said it for so long is that it seems obvious that you cannot have an industry with so many um, companies doing so little to focus on the customer and so little to actually um, you know, differentiate because they all look the same. Uh, and yet you know, 20, 30 years since those statements, they're all still there and they're all still undifferentiated and they're all still um, you know, not focused on the customer. Uh, could that be the same 20, 30 years from now? I don't think so. And, but having said that, I think the banks will still be all there and still as dominant. There'll just be less of them. And the reason why I say that is that the experience I've been through is – as I said earlier, a lot of young people do not realize why banks work the way they work and why they're regulated the way they are. Mm. And that doesn't disappear quickly. And you know, the average U.S. bank deals with 128,000 regulations. The average U.S. technology company deals with 27,000. When you have little regulation, you can be agile and quick. Mm. When you have lots of regulation, you cannot be agile and quick. And that's what's always been a historical barrier to entry into banking and equally the reason why banks are slow to adapt and change. And yes, that is evolving because of regulatory sandboxes and reg tech. But the idea that banks will disappear overnight is ridiculous because the regulatory structures do not enable anything to happen overnight. It takes a long time to change. 
Well, and speaking about this transition, I also read from Digital uh, Human the migration towards, you know, from banks to API curators uh, instead of repositories of proprietary software. This is a bit to go back to the fact that banks are have the tendency to build in-house whatever they can. Uh, now, I think there is, however, another way uh, that several banks, especially in Asia and US, are considering, at least looking at the news and the numbers, which involves acquiring innovative startups to add you know, that new functionality to add to their stack and own it. Because I think that's I mean, my impression is that banks always want to own it. Uh, now, is this a viable way for European banks as well, uh, you know, to stay afloat in the modern world while maintaining their, you know, what you call the control freak character, uh, typical of the old old school bank? Yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult change to go from being a bank that controls everything to a bank that partners with everyone. Uh, and that involves a cultural mindset change, which most banks haven't been able to, to make happen. And so, although I talk about JP Morgan as one that gets digital transformation, they haven't necessarily fully embraced that idea of being an open partner structure because they have 165,000 employees, of which 50,000 are developers and technologists. Um, so a third of their staff are, are, are designers and developers. Um, so to move away from building and owning everything would be difficult because you've got a third of your people who are specifically there to build and um, develop and own everything. Um, and that's the situation in a lot of banks, that they have a lot of people who specifically their role is to design and develop and own and build everything. And so how the hell are you going to just say, I'm going to work with these guys who can do it for a much lower price? And effectively, that means that I'm going to get rid of those people. Um that's really difficult. Uh, so what I see happening right now with open banking, open APIs, is that there's very few that really get the curation model. Um, there's still a lot that are control freaks. Um, but there are some that are getting interesting. So DBS in Singapore is another bank that's working in my um, project uh, around how to embrace digital transformation. And they have about um, over 80% of their um, IT in the private cloud structure today, hmm. which is incredible because yeah. most banks haven't even got any. Um, and the ones that are doing it quite well, maybe have got 20%, so 80% is very high. That's taken 10 years. Um, and they talk about technology as business, business is technology. So um, they've flattened the organization. They've moved all their IT function into the business. Uh, if you go around audit, compliance, um, treasury operations, any part of their business, you'll find designers and developers in microservices teams alongside the business people ideating and developing and coding. Um, and that's an agile organizational structure, which... You know, a lot of people talk about, but they haven't really got it. Uh, and then they go out and find whatever they can to bring better experiences to the customer or to the business, which is the curation piece. Mm. Um, but there's, you know, they are an exception to the, um, there's very few that actually uh, are, are doing this well. They're one of the few that's um, certainly from what I've seen so far appears to be. Um, and that's the business model of the future, because if you carry on building everything, controlling everything, then you're so stifled in slow-to-change structures that you're never going to make it as an agile organization. 
there is another aspect I want to uh, to discuss with you, which is legacy systems. Uh, so majority of the banks, in fact, are still diving into their legacy systems, which is a piece of museum from the 70s, if not earlier. Now, I do believe, as you wrote also in your book, they, they should get rid of that as soon as they can. But from a practical perspective, of course, that would take years or even decades and definitely billions of investment in euro or dollars. What do we do in the meantime? Well, you have to run the bank and change the bank. Um, and the problem for most banks is they're just running the bank like they've always run the bank and they're not changing the bank. Um, and when you run the bank and you're not changing it, then one of the things that you're running is old systems that are risky to um, take out because they're the core of the bank. They're the cemented infrastructure that I referenced earlier that historically just did debits and credits in branches as a ledger entry. And today that ledger entry is what's delivering data into your customers' digital apps. So I get incredibly annoyed with my big, large banks because when I use their apps, they never tell me proactively or predictively what's going to happen over my account in the next few weeks or months, which is what obviously personal financial management in the challenger banks does pretty well. They give me no analytics of what I've spent um, they give me one thing which I, I, I really want, but they can't deliver, which is to tell me when I get money. Um, so an example is that I have a challenger bank app and I have a old bank app and the old bank app, because it runs off old bank core systems, uh, never alerts me to when I receive money. The challenger bank always tells me you just got some money, ding, ding, as a alert. Which, which um, is also good to hear. <laughs> it is, but the old, but the new bank app I never open because it always tells me when something's happening. Right. The old bank app I open about three times a day to see if I've got money. Right. So the old bank is saying we've got the best digital audience in Britain because our app is used three times a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got and your point. <laughs> that's what they think is good. Whereas I'm going, that's really bad because I shouldn't have to open the app to find out what's going on. Um, and the only reason I have to open the app to find out what's going on is because it's got this old core system that's legacy that does no updates and it's yeah. maybe even batch-based, doing overnight updates, I don't know. Um, you know it, it just amazes me how systems from the 1970s are still being used in the 2010s. Yeah. And my favorite example of a company that's really understanding it technology and finances and financial Alibaba, which is the case study at the end of Digital Human. Uh, and I just remember meeting their head of systems architecture, and he said, oh, I've, I've just been hired to manage the, the next generation of our systems. And I said, oh, what generation is that? And he said, oh, the fifth generation. And this was in 2017. And I said, the fifth generation systems, you know, but you're only a 14-year-old company, and financial uh, Alipay was started in 2003. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first generation was a very simple system just to get started. The second was using Oracle and Microsoft to give us this some scale. The third was that we realized we couldn't get the scale we needed, so we developed our own cloud and our own database services. Uh, the fourth was to bring in artificial intelligence to every transaction. And the fifth is actually to go to a million transactions a second for two billion users. And my bath dropped open by this point because not only the scale of the idea of two billion users doing a million transactions a second, but the fact that they've thrown their systems away every three years average 
when most banks haven't thrown their systems away for 30 years or maybe even 300 years. Well, I have my last question about blockchain, as I promised you, <laughs> which is... The secret one, which is Chris, <laughs> can you explain blockchain? <laughs> well, it's not really a secret. <laughs> no, but I mean, I know blockchain technology quite well. I've been developing for uh, for a few years already. But as you mentioned before, indeed, there is there are very few use cases for which, uh, you know, banks should be kind of fearing blockchain uh, blockchain technology but i believe that if there is one place blockchain can play a role and uh, you know it already proved to do so uh is payments uh, and so for example if uh, you know with blockchain you can you know perform payments almost instantly or well relatively quick i will i will go i will get there in a minute for a fraction of the price that you have of the costs that you have with uh, with traditional uh, remittance fees right so if someone comes to me and i'm an old bank and says hey i have this technology with crazy cheap remittance fees you know that is giving a nightmare uh, definitely now i believe that banks have proven to have showed to fear the technology uh, other than embracing it, at least on the payment side of things. What do you think? Well, I mean, banks are implementing Ripple for that reason. Um, and one of the examples was at a conference I was at, uh, moderating a panel, and the Bank of Abu Dhabi said that when they're transmitting funds to Muscat Oman, it takes four or five days through the bank's network um, of old uh, whereas they can drive to a man in four hours. So why take four days when they can drive there in four hours? It'd be quicker. Um, and so they implemented Ripple. So now it's immediate, which um, is the way it should be. And within payments, uh, yep, that, you know, that's one of the many use cases that I do see in finance that it makes sense. You know, there's a trade finance, supply chain management, digital identity, clearing of settlements. Um, there's many. Um, so there, there are many, but it goes back to to really get them to work. There's an infrastructural counterparty discussion that has to take place, and that's preemptive of the technology implementation. What Ripple's achieved is made it a fast cycle over that uh, counterparty agreement. Uh, but you don't have that in clearing settlement and trade finance and digital identity uh, as a standard today. Uh, and that's where I think the, um, the the real change will occur is that if we can find you know, the industry, for example, agreeing on a digital identity structure for onboarding clients and um, speeding up KYC, that would be incredible. Um, does that have to come through SWIFT? Not necessarily. Uh, will it happen? I, eventually it will. I just don't know how it's going to happen or who will make it happen, but I think it will. So that's where the real blockchain barrier lies, which is getting some agreement around the infrastructure um, and how to make this happen on a standardized basis so everyone can say, yeah, I can buy into that. Well, Ripple is controlled by banks, in fact. What do you think about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all the other you know, more public blockchains that can still provide a very interesting payment system? I'm not saying they are ready to scale to the numbers of Visa and MasterCard. They can support something like 250,000 transactions per second, while Ethereum, for example, is stuck at, uh, I don't know, 30-ish transaction per second. So we're still very far from there. But what happens when, well, first of all, I would like to know your opinion about these two major public blockchains. And then what do you think would happen the day, you know, this number of transactions per second limit is no longer the case? Well, 
Ethereum and Bitcoin are both really interesting experiments. And right now, I, st I still think they're very experimental. Um, the day they stop telling me to fork off is when I can start to commit to them. Um, so when you have a reboot of a system on a regular basis, that means it's not reliable. And until it's reliable, I don't think any sort of um, prime time production on a globalized or enterprise basis is viable. Um, having said that, there are some viable enterprise production systems that are being developed around Ethereum in particular, smart contracts. Mm -hmm. um, and IBM Hyperledger and Microsoft with the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance are driving a lot of corporate change to start to try and develop into enterprise production systems. Um, so it will happen over time, but it has to be reliable infrastructure first. With Bitcoin itself, you know, I, I love the concept of Bitcoin. Um, I don't agree with a lot of people who've been um, pioneering and promoting Bitcoin because they do it on the basis of um, it's going to change the world. It's money without government. And I just disagree with the idea of money without government because of historical um, you know, basis of the reason why money exists. Um, but I think eventually, you know, we will see a global digital currency that can be used cross-border and maybe it may be made up by Facebook as a stable coin or um, by US government with IBM as a US dollar-backed digital currency. Who knows? But it's, it's, it seems obvious it's going to happen because otherwise, how can you have a global network without a global currency to do global trade on a global network? So the game is definitely open, that's what you say. Oh, yeah. Well, that was my last secret question. So, Chris, it was very nice to have you here. And uh, I'm sure that the listeners of Data Science at Home, especially the ones operating in fintech, will enjoy your point of view. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Francesca. Have a great day. This was Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. If you like the show, don't forget to write a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Podbean. You can also find us on datascienceathome.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter and get the latest updates. Thanks for listening.